You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. RPN. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. Mission Log Supplemental, number 39. The one with Matthew Corey and Tracy Lee Coco. And the Mission Log Essential Episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Our look back at TNG continues, and this week, we brought some friends along. We've got Matthew Corey. Yes, we do. We've got Matthew Corey. How about you? He wrote the original uh, story draft for True Q when he was just 17 years old. So he's going to tell us uh, that story and what it was like to tour the set of Star Trek The Next Generation. That sounds pretty rad. We will also hear from Lieutenant J herself, Tracy Lee Coco. And and we'll do the patented mission log ranking list that is definitely not a ranking list and cannot be contained by a set of numbers. Yeah, I know. I was supposed to pick out five. You'll be happy to know, John. I think I only picked out 11. Uh, that's good. That's, that's par for the course. Yeah, I, I picked out five, and I think I've got about eight honorable mentions. So, ah, yeah. okay. Yeah. And, and it, we'll just preface it now, and we'll say that uh, it's our essentials um, that have no meaning beyond, uh, these are cool, <laughs> right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. In fact, yeah. I think that's how, the, that's how the bit goes, right? Which is like, you remember, you remember that episode? Yeah, that was, that was great. <laughs> that was, I really like when that thing happened. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what we haven't done in a while, or it feels like we haven't done it in a while anyway, uh, is tell people how to get in touch with us. So if you will let me, I will tell them. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. We will have words with our friend Matthew Corey in a moment. But first... But first, a word from Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Blue Apron shops the way you would shop, which means for at least a few meals a week, you can skip the shopping. I say they shop the way you would because they take great care with the ingredients. The meats are responsibly raised, the seafood is sustainably sourced, and the produce comes from farms that practice regenerative farming. Now, I will tell you one of the biggest problems I have shopping is I end up just buying the same blessed things over and over and over again. And the thing is, there are things I like, but after a while... Like, I've got stuff in my fridge right now that I'm just like, I would sooner tip the fridge over than have this. 
And what's really cool is uh, Blue Apron knows that that happens to people and they don't want that to happen to you. So in a whole year, they will not repeat a recipe on you. You won't be eating the same thing week after week like I do when I'm left to my own devices. Now, all that sounds pretty expensive, but it's really not that expensive. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers everything you need to make good home-cooked meals about which you can feel good. Meals like strip steak and potatoes with spicy maple collard greens. Mm. Soy glazed Korean rice cakes with broccoli and soft-boiled eggs. Mm. And creamy fusilli bucati pasta with fried rosemary and walnuts. Mm. I love me some fried rosemary. I really do. Mm -hmm. That's actually, I love that. Uh, Plus, if you're like me, you'll learn a bit about cooking as well. For example, would it have occurred to you to fry rosemary? Would it really? It's really good. Seriously, you have to try it. For me, Blue Apron actually improved the foods that I made, whether it was, you know, out of one of their boxes or from uh, from my local store. Ken, I have to tell you, I've been cooking up a storm lately with Blue Apron, and it's great because uh, it's two servings, and, like, I'll have the next serving the next day for lunch, and I'll, I'll bring it to the office and, and open it up, and somebody's like, hey, uh, that looks really good. What are you having there? And I'm like, oh, it's a linguine with bolognese and fresh vegetables. And they're like, mmm. They make the yummy sound, too. And I'm like, mmm, it was easy to do, too. And it's delicious. And, and I find that, like you, my techniques have improved by doing that. Because once I learned how to make that sauce, I said to myself, you know what? I could do this with just a few simple ingredients really fast on my own. So they've definitely kicked up my cooking game. That's actually one of the things we haven't talked about in a while, too. Because, like, you know, you make something really great. And then, I don't know about you, but I'm uh, I'm pretty forgetful on exactly how to do things, exactly what steps to take, until I've done it five, six, seven times, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Blue Apron stuff comes with uh, these really great cards to show you, you know, first of all, what the ingredients are that you're going to be using, and also what it should look like as you go through. But then the thing is, once you're done with all the pre-prepared ingredients that you've got and all that stuff, you've still got the recipe card. So you can always go back and make something that you like. Uh, again and again and again until you're sick of it, like I get with the food that I make for myself. I've got a stack of them in my kitchen, and sometimes I just look at it wistfully and think, oh, I remember that great meal. I should relive that moment. You should relive that. And you can. That's my point, John. You can. (laughs) Yes, yes. So here's what we want people to do. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first order with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mission log. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash mission log. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And a huge thanks to Blue Apron for sponsoring this week's show. Now, we want to check in with the person who holds the distinction of being the youngest Star Trek writer who had a script produced. His name is Matthew Corey. Now, in the summer of 1992, when Matthew was only 17, he drafted a script called Cue Me, which the producers read, and they bought it. And it went through a number of changes, the way any Hollywood script does. And here to fill us in on the rest of the story is Matthew Corey. Matthew, welcome to Mission Log. Hey, thanks, guys. Great to be here. Fantastic, man. Now, um, we heard from you 
way, way long ago when we were in the throes of discussing Next Gen, and here we are wrapping it up, but you kindly introduced yourself and said, hey, I'm the guy who wrote that original draft. I wonder if you could take us back a little bit to uh, to the summer of 1992 and uh, and tell us a little bit about what you wrote. And my understanding is it was a really quick turnaround for you before you heard back from the producers. Yeah, um, it started with my brother had moved to Los Angeles, my, one of my older brothers, and he had a couple of roommates, and one of them was going to submit a script to Star Trek The Next Generation because they had the open submission policy. And my brother didn't know a lot about Star Trek, so he mailed it to me, and I read it, and I was like, oh, this is really neat. And that was where I first got the idea of, I could probably write one of these. And um I had been doing acting at the time, uh, mostly high school plays and things like that. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool to be able to be on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation? So I'll, I'll write a script with a part for me. And if they want to buy the script, they have to hire me to, to play the part. Because that's how you think reality works when you're 17. <laughs> and so during my junior year of high school, uh, I was working on this script. It would have been during season five of The Next Generation. And I had always been a big Will Wheaton fan, and I was bummed when he left the show. So I was like, well, I'll write an episode where Wesley comes back. And I figured, you know, most people come back home for Christmas vacation. So I figured, well, we've never done a Christmas episode on Next Gen, aside from, you know, the uh, the science lab party back in the old series. And, uh, you know, it wasn't to, to put a big Christmas theme on it. It was just an excuse for why Wesley Crusher would have a break from Starfleet Academy and come back to the Enterprise to visit his mom and everybody and what if Wesley brought a couple of friends with him from the Academy? And so it was this uh, a boy and a girl, and they were a couple. And as the uh, you posted the, the first few pages on the Discover Documents on the True Q section of Mission Log, and you see how it, it seems like the shuttle's going to get destroyed. And at the last moment, the, the guy on the character, Jonathan, he's able to put his hands out, and it, it flashes the, the shuttlecraft into the shuttle bay, and everyone's safe. Um, and so over the course of the episode, they discover that, that Jonathan has the Q powers and he ends up in the end deciding he has to go off with Q and he, he takes his girlfriend with him. Um, and you know, uh, so I, I got the whole script written up, I had 55 pages total and I, uh, writ to wrote to Paramount to get the submission guidelines in those days. You had to have a fully formatted script and you had to have their submission form fully filled out and signed. And if you were under 21, you had to have it signed by a parent or guardian. So I had my mom sign the bottom of the form with me. And uh, it says on the, the thing, it usually takes several months for them to get read and to get any kind of response. And I remember I mailed it uh, at the late June of 92. And about a month later, I got a phone call from Paramount one day saying that they were interested in uh, buying the premise from me. Wow. I have to say that what I really admire is that um, it seems like your inspiration, it was really coming from a place of genuine enthusiasm and some innocence about how this whole thing works. Um, but it was also very self-serving. So congratulations on that, on, on bridging those two uh, and making them one. No, uh, it's really cool. I mean, because I, 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 I think that anybody who uh, has been a fan of anything, and particularly at that age when you're you know, creative and inspired, of course, you, you picture yourself 
in that world. That's something about Star Trek. That's one of the enduring things about Star Trek is that we picture ourselves in that world. And you took it to the next step and and wrote that script. Yeah, I mean, it was... um... I started watching Star Trek since The Next Generation began. As, as Ken says, that's my track. Um, mm. I always enjoyed the original cast movies a lot when I was a kid. Still remember going to see Wrath of Khan with the family and getting creeped out during the Seti Eel scene. And um, Star Trek IV, the scene where they're, they're going back through time and they have weird imagery. I always thought maybe I'll understand what all that is when I get older. And after listening to your review, I'm glad to realize, no, there's really nothing to understand. It was just some some cool imagery to put on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's just to look cool. So you write a script. You send in the script. They call you and say, we want to buy the premise. Already you know what you wrote is not going to end up completely on the screen. When you actually get to watch the episode, when you get to sit down and watch the episode, you know, like when it's broadcast on TV, because I assume that was the first time you saw it was when it was actually broadcast, right? Yes. So when you're sitting there watching it, are you like really proud and excited because that thing that you wrote ended up being this thing that you're watching? Or are you going, where's the dude? What happened to the guy? Where, where, why am I not sitting there? I mean, which, because on the one hand, you did something that so many people dreamed about for forever and continue to dream about to this day. And on the other hand, it wasn't exactly what you had in mind. Um, I'm curious what your feelings were when it, you know, when the moment came. I knew ahead of time that, you know, a lot of it was going to be changed. And I even mentioned uh, when the first guy who was the vice president of business affairs for Paramount called me. I had mentioned about me wanting to be on the show, but then, you know, during SAG union roles and things like that, it just wasn't going to happen. Plus, I lived on the other side of the country. So, mm-hmm. uh, and then it's not like I could take my script and go to another show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll so see like, what Bab 5 thinks of your disdain. Oh, wait, Quantum true. Leap presents a script by Matthew Corey. Yeah. <laughs> so this, was, this was even before Babylon 5. So, yeah, mm. Quantum Leap would have oh, been my wow. only hope, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, Olivia Dabo did a great job uh, in the role. So I knew that they were going to change the character to a female early on. And um, I had talked with Renee Echeverria a couple of times. He had, he was really nice and called me because he had been in the same area a few years earlier when the offspring had gotten picked up by Next Gen. And um, granted, he was older than me at the time. And he was, you know, actually working on it as a writer, whereas they knew they needed it early for season six. Otherwise, they might have tried to let me do one of the rewrites. But I think, you know, what they wanted to do was so different than what I originally had. And they needed it early. And I was a 17-year-old kid at the time. Uh, it was just, let's do this in-house. And so, yeah, I got my check for the uh, the source material premise sale. And they got my name in the ending credits. So here you are, 17, 18 years old and uh, living in North Carolina. And uh, then you get to walk around and go like, yeah, I'm a uh, I'm a produced Hollywood screenwriter. Is that, uh... yeah, my, my senior year of high school, everyone knew me as the Star Trek guy. <laughs> nice. Now, yeah. I mean, I was known for that as well, but uh, for for different reasons. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and you were so kind uh, back when we first talked about this to share some of those script pages, and uh, and I'm going to put up some more in the discovered documents so that we can see that original draft. Um, is there anything that you look back at that and you just go like, "Oh man, seventeen year old me, don't don't do that, don't don't, don't write that." 
Yeah, I mean, like most writers, if you look back at something you wrote a week later, you start to think, oh, what was I thinking? Yeah. But, and, you know, there, there was part of me that was tempted to sort of touch it up a little bit. But the other part was like, no, let's leave it the way it was, the way Paramount saw it, the way it, it sold. With, you know, just the caveat of when somebody I meet today reads it. I'm like, remember, I was 17 when I wrote this. So. When you watched the finished episode, did, did you watch and think, oh, that that was a brilliant idea that they came up with. I wish I had done that. I, I did think it was brilliant, but I, I didn't think, man, I wish I had done that. But, yeah, I did think it was a, a good story. Uh, it was, you know, obviously very different than what I had. My story originally it wound up being more like the, the game episode where, you know, in my story, again, Wesley comes back and saves the Enterprise once again, because that's what Will Wheaton does. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I was writing it. I had started it before season five had began. And then they did the episode where Wesley came back. And luckily, I was only a, a short bit into writing the script. So I incorporated uh, Ensign Leffler into my script and... Um, maybe a line or two to reference his events. And I was almost done. I think I'd had like the first draft finished and then the Nova squadron episode aired. So I'm, I'm sitting at home ready to send this in. And I see next week on star Trek, the next generation Wesley's back. And I'm like, Oh man. <laughs> so luckily nothing that, that uh, I couldn't undo. And at that point, I'm also thinking, you know, they're going to change most of what I send in anyway. So don't stress completely over it. I was going to say a minute ago, I love the fact that uh, that you're, a lot of the reason for your script starts with a love of Wesley, uh, but then you come to a point that a lot of people came to when they saw, next week, Wesley's back. And you're like, oh, well, I man. I was happy he was back, but it, I didn't want him to screw up my script. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So uh, I, I enjoyed your, your supplemental with Will. That was really cool. Oh, thank you for that. He was, yeah, he was a great sport about that and just had a lot of interesting stuff to say. Um. Well, listen, you know, we're uh, we're all starting uh, from a place of being fans of Star Trek. And I know that that, that that's what got you down this path that, that you went on and your contribution to Star Trek. And and here Ken and I are now wrapping up our time with Next Gen. So a uh, couple of questions for you. First of all, were you a fan of Star Trek before Next Gen came on? Or was that really your entry point into this world? I enjoyed Star Trek before The Next Generation. You know, I knew who Captain Kirk was, and I'd, I'd seen the movies, and I'd seen parts of some of the episodes, and I've seen, I saw a few of the episodes. But, you know, at that point, it's sort of, the original Star Trek kind of went through that phase of where, in the, the 80s, it seemed, the old show just seemed kind of goofy and silly. And then, you know, later on, once again, it became really cool again. Or, you know, you just, you appreciate it more, I guess. Yeah, the the Batman 66 series kind of went through the same cycle. Um, And so, you know, I enjoyed Star Trek. And then when the the next generation was coming on, I was like, oh, this looks cool. It's got Will Wheaton and the guy from Reading Rainbow. So, yeah, why not? And uh, I just, I kept coming back every week. Channel 22 and Raleigh on Saturday nights. You actually got to, you actually got to visit the set at one point? I did. Uh, spring break of my senior year, I went out to California, visited my brother who was living in Burbank at the time, and I had a pitch meeting with Renee to pitch some more ideas for season seven. Uh, none of the ideas, either none of them really went over or they were already working on similar stuff. And since they knew season seven was going to be it, they didn't have a whole lot of slots left open. But Renee was kind enough to take my brother Russ and I over to the Enterprise sets for a tour. So we got to see almost all of the standing Enterprise sets, the bridge, 
10 forward uh, engineering, the, the transporter room, all the all the really cool things. It was the day we were there, they were shooting the episode Timescape, where the Romulan ship and the Enterprise are frozen in time. And mm. they were shooting on the Romulan engineering set, which is why all of the Enterprise sets were open. So it was really cool. I, I got to sit in Captain Picard's chair uh, before Stephen Hawking got to, actually. And uh, one thing I noticed, the, the little incline on the bridge where you go up to the, the horseshoe part, it was a lot steeper than it looked on TV. You know, it's, it's I mean, you know, we think it's just like this little gentle ramp. No, it's, it's almost like stairs. That was how, uh, how steep it was. So if you watch some of those scenes, you can see them, you know, taking some good healthy steps to get up there. Well, it's good plan. You keep the actors in shape that way, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. They, they knew what they were doing by the time they got to next gen. And, uh, I can explain the, the Riker's part. lean forward every time he moves anywhere on the bridge. There could be. They could, yeah, he, he leads with the upper part of his body. He does. Yeah. You, you need you need that center of gravity shift to get up that ramp. I'm telling you, that's that's why uh, what Admiral Jameson's chair couldn't get up there. Right. Right. Yeah. But I got to meet Gates McFadden that day. Also, she was over in the writers' building, and uh, I got to say hello. The really cool thing was when I I told her who I was, she had heard of me. I was like, wow. Oh, how cool! Doctor Crusher knew who I was, but. Um, <laughs> If you've you've listened to the audio commentaries on the Blu-ray, uh, when they do the Offspring, Renee Echeverria and the Yakutas have an audio commentary track, and Renee actually sort of remembers me years later. He remembered the last name Corey, and he thought I was from Texas, so he was I guess half the country off. But he was, he was so close. He was close, but you know, after that, he went on to work on at Deep Space Nine and Dark Angel and Castle and several other shows, and I you know I went on to college. So, Matthew, you got to visit the set, you got to meet Gates, you got to meet uh, so many people associated with the show, but um, there was one that uh, you had told me that uh, you got to meet some Star Trek royalty, uh, Major Barrett Roddenberry. I did. Uh, I was in college at UNC Wilmington uh, in the mid to late 90s, and they had done one of the smaller conventions, but she was the guest of honor at this convention they'd had in downtown Wilmington. And it was really neat. That was after the script had sold. So I actually got to talk to her for a couple of minutes. And she was very nice. Nice. Yeah. She was she was a cool lady. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I had the chance to meet her. She was really wonderful. Now, in the next segment, Ken and I are going to talk about our essential next-gen episodes. And in the true Mission Log format, um, it, it, it's not a competition. Uh, we're not ranking, <laughs> but but we do want to talk about the episodes that kind of speak to us. So before we get to that, um, I, I want to ask you, let's just riff for a minute or two here. To you, what were the key episodes that really spoke to you? And when you look back on Next Gen, what episodes are really important to you? And then we'll tell um, you if you're right or wrong. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, well, let's see. As far as like my essential episodes that I really loved... Um, Best of Both Worlds has to be on that list because it's it's just cinematic and uh, it's it's a great story. When they were releasing the Blu-ray sets, they had that in the theaters, the Best of Both Worlds, as just a a not broken up like an hour and a half movie event, and it was really neat to get to go and see and see the next generation on the big screen when it was good. Oh yeah, not you know it was sort of making up for Nemesis not being the best send off. Right. Um, the Measure of a Man. It's a wonderful episode, and it, it speaks to a lot. And uh, 
I have to give honorable mention to True Q, of course. It spoke a lot to me, especially for those <laughs> three seconds in the ending credits. <laughs> you got a whole three seconds? Man, that, that's, got, that's a long hold. On a you. whole three good. seconds. Nice. Yep, so I've only, I've only used three seconds of my 15 minutes of fame up. <laughs> well, we'll cut this short then so we don't burn it all up right here. Oh, right. all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then probably Yesterday's Enterprise would be my other uh, essential episode. It shows redemption, and it, it, it's also a great story, and just you know how one event not going the way it's supposed to can make a big difference in life later on. And you see that again in Tapestry. Well, thank you so much. Those are some good choices, and, um, and maybe some of those will, uh, will come back when, when we have our talk in the next segment. Really appreciate it, Matthew, and, uh, and I really appreciate you chiming in uh, as you do from week to week on the shows, on Twitter, and uh, get the occasional email from you. It's really, really cool to see that you're still involved in Star Trek and the, the morals, meanings, messages still, uh, still speak to you. All right, and uh, thanks for doing the show, guys. It uh, it makes the cubicle a little less soul-crushing listening to, to you guys talk about Star Trek. Creative people doing creative things. Mr. Matthew Corey. Look at that. 17, dude, 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wrote, like, little scenes and stuff when I was 17, but nothing I thought, oh, you know who this would be good for? People watching TV. <laughs> no, really? No. Yeah, I, Not so much. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so surprised. You should dig those out and, and maybe submit those to an agent now. And, you think and I should? You can, really? Yeah, sure. You never yeah, know. That'll be fantastic. Know. That'd, be, that'd mm-hmm. be amazing. Hey, we talked to Matthew about uh, some of his um, essential uh, TNG episodes, some of the episodes that really spoke to him. Uh, and now I figured, you know, why don't we talk to ourselves about that? Uh, just to ourselves, or should we share it with the audience? Well, yeah, sure, if you want to, and and not okay. about not about his essentials actually, but our oh, essentials. about our own essentials. Yeah. yeah. For example, yeah. if I were to say to you, "Hey, John, do you think you could tell me like a few essential TNG episodes, like ones that that you know, really spoke to you on some level?" Do you think you'd be able to do that? Uh, oh, you mean right now? Sure. Yeah, I could do that. I could do that as long as we are in front of a mic and recording. Um, <laughs> I feel like I need to reiterate the rules because this all goes back to uh, pretty much every time you and I have done a convention appearance mm-hmm. and, and there's sort of the pressure to do a show and, and to have a theme and have a topic. And sometimes it comes down to, you know, what episodes are the favorites, what are the essential, what are the top 10? And, uh, and we hate that. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we hate that for a number of reasons because as is the rule on Mission Log, every episode is somebody's favorite. Every episode is somebody's least favorite, and all for valid reasons, you know. Um, so it, it's it's a slippery slope to get into a conversation. We say these are the best, but I think what's interesting is that as an individual, we we get to share. I get to share. You get to share with our audience. Like these are the episodes that stuck out. These are the episodes that we we'll probably go watch again and can kind of make a case for. So uh, I picked five. And um, I also picked some honorable mentions. And because we limited it to five, I think you picked like 11, right? <laughs> right. So, okay, good. Well, good. what I did was actually, I, so there are three that are standalone episodes. And then the last two are sort of like if I were putting together a box set. Mm, okay. If, if I were yeah. putting together a playlist yeah. for somebody, I would say watch this one, this one, and this one. So, Got it. Yeah. Got it. 
Okay. All right. So uh, I'll, I'll kick things off here, and uh, and I'll give you my five. I'll give you some notes on those, and then um, I'll tell you what some of the, the logic was around it. So um, first one I picked was the big goodbye. And and here's why, because I, I felt like this is the first time. Well, it was the first time we really got to experience a holiday. Wait, I got to stop you. I got to stop you. If you're going to – because we have to do this. If you're going to say – what the episode is, you also have to remind people what the episode is. Oh, sure. The Big Goodbye is the first Dixon Hill holo novel. Picard and Crusher, and they're, they're in there, and the, the holodeck novel, and then something goes wrong because it's a holodeck, <laughs> right. and, and a real guy gets shot. Yeah. Right. Well, a, a guy gets really shot. Yeah, yeah. A real guy gets really shot, and yeah. So the, therein lies the problem. What, what's wrong with the holodeck? You know? um, but here's the thing. It, it's the first time we really got to play in the holodeck, even though we opened with it and encounter at Farpoint. This is the first time it, TNG showed us how people in the 24th century would play. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this is a really nice parallel to shore leave without just doing shore leave again. Instead of doing, you know, the naked now, instead of the naked time, they didn't do shore leave now. <laughs> Just they created this new thing. Um, and and this episode was new and fresh, and it was before the holodeck became its own trope. So there, there's something singular about that episode. And I remember that our conversation in that, we really, that that was the kickoff point for us to ask, what is the computer experiencing when the holodeck is running and what is the computer expressing when the holodeck is running is maybe there's that hollow character at the end that's dixon hill's friend who asks like okay so what happens when this shuts off i've i've got a wife and a family yeah what happens now and that it's sort of just a throwaway moment in the episode but that became something profound for us to discuss to say all right does this say something about technology and technology that is aware. So, big goodbye. Um, similarly, my my next essential is elementary dear data. Um, I needed a Pulaski episode. <laughs> elementary dear data is where you needed a Pulaski episode, and you stayed away from Shades of Gray. That's like choosing twenty episodes. I know it would have been so much better to choose Shades of Gray, right? <laughs> yeah. But but here we are with another holodeck episode uh, where where we first put Data and Jordy in the Sherlock Holmes guys and they meet Moriarty, uh, but Pulaski comes along and says, "No, no, we're, we're going to make this more challenging. We, let's challenge the robot, shall we?" And um, I I like Data getting challenged in this way, and it also led to a great discussion about the sentience of the Enterprise computer. That seemed to be a running theme for us as we discussed next gen. Um, and let's face it, Pulaski was just a great way to shake up yeah. TNG, even though it was this early, it was in that second season, never to be heard from again, <laughs> but, but uh, glad to have her along for that brief time. All right, so next up I picked Who Watches the Watchers. You remember this one, Ken. This is the tribe of proto-Vulcans. I still don't understand how you get proto-Vulcans, but whatever, you get proto-Vulcans on a planet, and then they mistake Picard for the Picard, the god. Um, 
this is such a throwback to a TOS style episode. Um, and it dealt with uh, a topic that is near and dear to me when Star Trek deals with it, which is religion and belief and and sort of false gods. Um, it was a great exploration of that and a more modern way of doing that than the way that TOS had handled it. Go back to episodes like Who Mourns Radonais and others that, that dealt with religion. This was a, a new, fresh take on it. So that, to me, is an essential. Next up, I have The Outcast. Um, look, it, it is a bonk-bonk-on-the-head episode. You have a, a planet full of androgynous aliens, and androgyny is the rule. Anybody who expresses male or female is different. They are the outsider. They are the outcast. And it has this beautifully tragic ending where the character who has fallen in love with Riker is forced to give up her femaleness and integrate, assimilate back into their androgynous world. It's kind of the TNG equivalent of Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Mm -hmm. It is hitting you over the head. Battlefield was specifically about race. This was specifically about gender and and gay rights to the extent that they would do it in the early 90s on television. Um, but I felt like it was a step in the right direction. And it's a very Star Trek way of handling that issue. And then rounding out my list, I have The Measure of a Man. Because you talk about a message episode, this is one of those next-gen moments where the message is about us. Data's status at the end of the day really doesn't matter. But this episode is directly a challenge to the audience through the characters on Star Trek to say, how will you treat people who are not like you? How will you treat people that you assume at first don't have the same rights that you do? Um, this is really next gen at its preachiest best, <laughs> and and I love it for it. Um, now we're going to talk about your episodes. I I do want to mention something that I noticed in my list before I get to yours and to the honorable mentions here. Um, I looked at my list and I realized that there wasn't specifically a theme, but there were some attributes here. There was nothing with lore. Mm. <laughs> there was nothing with Loxana. There's nothing with Sila. There's no Yesterday's Enterprise, which is an awesome, theatrical, action-filled, mind-bleepery episode. There's also no Borg. And I know that the Borg are, are the major thing to come out of Next Gen as far as that, that sort of evergreen Star Trek villain that, that we all know and recognize and love and fear. And we'll see them in other Star Trek to come. But they didn't land anywhere in my list. And when I reflected on my list... What I was really seeing was that I was picking episodes that at the end of the day feel a little bit more like TOS. Hmm. And, and I don't think that was a specific thing that I was trying to do. But in my notes, I'm looking at a big goodbye. It's a parallel to Shore Leave. The Outcast is a parallel to Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's something that just fits with how I grew up with Star Trek. Um, I, when I sat down to write my list, I thought, yeah, you're going to have the Borg, you're going to have uh, best of both worlds, you're going to have all good things. You're gonna... And, and I didn't end up with any of those, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy with my choices. 
What's interesting to me is, so when I was making my list, I actually, I went to IMDb and I went through all seven seasons. But when I was originally thinking about it, the, the, the episodes that I could just toss out there really quickly, the ones I knew were going to be on the list um, were season one and two. Yeah, right. Which, which is also going to be early TOS stuff. I mean, I think that's Very the thing. Very TOS. When you, I mean, when you ask the question that we tend to ask, you know, the whole does it stand the test of time thing. I mean, yes, there, there's the... We're getting to know more about the characters, getting to know more about the stuff. But I think that only really holds up, like, like from the outside if you're deep inside. If you're into yeah. season five and you're like, yeah, why does Riker do that? Oh, well, here's an episode that's all about why <laughs> Riker does that thing, you know? Right. Then you're, like, really excited because you finally know that thing. But show it to your best friend who's never watched Star Trek. And first of all, why are they your best friend? But second, show it to your best friend who's never watched <laughs> Star Trek. And they're going to be like, wow, so you watch a, you watch a nighttime soap. You watch a future nighttime soap is what you're doing there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk about yours because then, then I, I might round that out a little bit with some of the honorable mentions. So, so tell me what you've got. Well, here's the problem. I, I came very close to having Waxana on my list. She's not, but I'll go ahead and say the one that, I, that, it, that nearly made it. Because, you, okay. you know, lists and me, please. Um, Wait, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Uh, uh, Half a Life. Half a Life. That is absolutely the one. No. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. Because it really, I mean, it was them sort of examining, like, why uh, why they were doing what they were doing. Why Timison was doing what he was doing. Half a Life, by the way. So Timison is, like, 59 years old, I believe. And he's working on a way to stop his son from either exploding or dying or something. Basically, so that the son, not his offspring, uh, so that the son around his planet, uh, around which his planet uh, um, orbits, uh, is going to kill everybody. But the thing is, mm-hmm. their society says, once you're 60, you're done. There's no use for you anymore. And so you go, renew, renew. And he's coming close to that. <laughs> and so he's got this idea of how he can save his planet. And he's fallen in love with Waxana. And he's 59 and three quarters. And and he thinks, fine, I'm out. I'm leaving. And his daughter, uh, played by Michelle Forbes before she was Ro Laren, uh, basically comes in and says... Everything I've taught, everything you've taught me, everything everything I've ever known, I'm just going to throw it over now. And in the end, he decides uh, he decides to go back with the society. And I don't like it, <laughs> but it's it's beautiful <laughs> and it's so incredibly well done. And it was I I I, I think it's incredibly safe to say um, Major Barrett's uh, shining moment as Waxana because most of the yeah, time it's funny. A quick comment on that episode, because I, I love it too so much, and I think it's such a, a beautiful telling of that story. And I, I feel like it's a very TNG telling of that story. Had that been told on the original series, it would have ended with Kirk like completely dismantling their traditions and saying, it's called old age, and you'll like it. Right. <laughs> it, it sail away into the starlight, and that's the end. Do you know that in our solar system, it takes Pluto 263 of our Earth years to go around the sun? So who knows how old he actually is? <laughs> ah, well done, Kirk. Yes. Right. Thank you. Come back and clean bedpans in five years, won't you? Because that's not something we know how to do on our planet. Right. Yeah. Right. Thanks. You'll, you, you'll, you'll like it a lot. Um, so sadly, that didn't make my list, although see, that was a difficult one to leave off because, I mean, there are a yeah, few that yeah. I did leave off, and you're not going to believe it by the time we get to the end of it. 
I got to start with the drum head. That, of course, was the one with Admiral Satie, who came in and thought, oh, no, there's a, there's a sort of a conspiracy in the Federation or in Starfleet, and so we're going to root that out. And when she can't find it, she just makes it up. Um, it sort of uh, showed how quickly truth and justice can be subverted uh, in favor of uh, jingoism and ultimately vendetta. She was right, and nothing was going to prove that she was wrong, not even facts. <laughs> right. And yeah. and uh, her speeches are just horrifying. Uh, Picard's speech is amazing. And, um, you know, we, we get to watch uh, we get to watch Worf come uh, back to his senses as well in that one, because he's, you know, he's law and order. And and somebody comes in like there's all this problem. And he's like, fine, let's let's, you know, let's dig into everybody's information. Let's dig into everybody's past. Let's tear this ship up to find the bad thing. And it turns out the bad yeah. thing is the thing that's sending him out to tear everything up. And uh, luckily he wakes up to that in the end. Um, and I, it's not like I like seeing Worf feel shame, but it was great to see him say, wow, how could I have been this dumb? And you look forward to you know seeing that other times in your life sometimes. Um, <laughs> I also had the outcast on there. And what's interesting is you and I didn't talk about this at all. No. But I saw the same sort of thing as far as let that be your last battlefield. Um it's not a perfect telling. I feel certain that there are people who wish that Trek had tackled homosexuality by actually tackling homosexuality. But if Let That Be Your Last Battlefield had been a white guy chasing a black guy or a black guy chasing a white guy, everybody would have been like, oh, hey, wait a minute, they're preaching. You know, yeah. whereas uh, on the other hand, when they do this like completely ridiculous thing or what, what compared to our norms is completely ridiculous, half white, half black, half black, half white, like literally drawn down the middle. Or, you know, we can look at this androgynous race and go, <laughs> aliens, am I right? And then you get to the end of it and you're like, oh, wait a minute. They're actually, oh, wait, it's uh, us. Yeah, they're actually talking about, they're talking about things that ah, I don't really like to talk about. Oh, mm-hmm. but maybe I should think about it since, you know, I sat here for 48 minutes thinking about it without realizing. Um, mm-hmm. I did have Borg on my list. It's I, Borg. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and this is actually oops I'm, I apologize I told you that I didn't start my uh, box set until the fourth pick but I actually did it in the third. <laughs> I would actually uh, so I would pair this one. We'll do it like wine and meat. I would pair this one with pen pals, honestly, which I know is kind of weird. So I Borg for people who don't remember is the one where the Enterprise finds the crashed little Borg ship, and there's like one living Borg left. And they take him back in because they're going to study him. And they're going to figure this whole thing out. And they're going to figure out how to destroy the Borg from this one Borg. And the problem is they start talking to him. And they find out that when you separate him from this thing that has been controlling his mind, he's got thoughts and feelings and ideas of his own. It doesn't help that they name him. And, And so then they can't do the genocide thing that they were going to do. Um, the reason I pair this with Pen Pals is because Pen Pals is the one where the planet's going to blow itself up for some reason that, you know, I've actually talked to scientists who can't explain it, <laughs> but the planet's going to blow itself up. And the thing is, um, there's a little girl, her name is Sarjenka, and she has radioed out into space uh, looking for help and Data has established contact with her. And, and Picard is angry with Data yeah, for establishing contact. And then uh, Picard hears her voice. The thing that I like about these episodes is they put a face on our actions, right? A planet's population is going to be wiped out is tragic in the abstract. But Sarjenka is going to die. Well, something has to be done. 
right? Yeah. Uh, the Borg are coming to kill us, so we have to kill them. That sounds completely sensible. But I'm going to strap a bomb onto my friend Hugh without his knowing and send him back home to blow it up. Um, makes us question our humanity. Or, in my personal opinion, should make us question our humanity. So... Mm-hmm. That's why I Borg was all over that. Plus, cute Borg. Just look at the cute little Borg. Oh, he was so adorable. Not yeah. since the baby Borg in season two have we had a Borg so cute. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's one of those things that Star Trek does really well, which is to say that when you put a face and emotions and a name and a reason behind a quote-unquote enemy, they become a lot less easy to kill. Um, and and we, we talked about that even uh, up to the day when we've been talking about Discovery, when we say that the, the whole idea that, uh, that Star Trek shows us humanizing that enemy is, uh, is really one of the things that it does well. Maybe it would be better to say relating to that enemy because, you know, humanizing Klingons is actually a big procedure. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's bones and blood, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's a mess. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. Yeah, well, yeah. And it's a mess. True. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah, my next pick only has four episodes. I, perfect. We're, we are right on schedule. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Time Squared. And Time Squared is the one. The rest of them, the rest of them you leave off as far as I'm concerned. Time Squared is the one for me um, because it forces Picard to look at himself. Literally and physically, but of course that's metaphor, mm-hmm. right? Um, there is a thing that Picard. Well, first of all, he's just like he's looking at his own inaction, and he's he's repulsed by it. But then the more he like comes to learn about it and understand this other Picard that he's facing, and I'm sorry, I've pretty much described the episode for you now. I realize I'm supposed to recap. So the Enterprise is approached by shuttle number five, I believe it was. But the problem is shuttle number five actually never left the Enterprise. And yet here it comes. And then piloting shuttle number five is Captain Picard. And it's not a clone and it's not a temporal whatever. It's Captain Picard. And Picard hates him because look at him. He's like gelatinous and just terrible. He doesn't even do anything. But the more he wakes up the more fearful he is and the more uh, driven to do the exact same thing he has done before that's gotten him there is. And so Picard is there calling all the shots, uh, like like the original Picard, I guess, or the one who was in command of the ship. And everybody's just following his orders. And for me, it spoke to uh, just addiction and ridiculousness of doing the same thing over and over again, uh, just hoping that it'll turn out better. Um, Yeah. So that was that one for me. But then the ones I paired with it are things like Second Chances, which is where Riker meets Thomas Riker, or Tapestry, where Picard actually has to go back and watch himself go through his life again, and even Nemesis, which is not good, except that Picard is faced with a clone of himself and, and in again, having to stare at himself, has to question everything he's done, has to question who he would have been, what he would have been, uh, what he owes to this other thing that sort of shares you know, some of his commonality. Um, of course, it's a movie, so he ends up killing him in the end. But, you know, or it ends up dying in the end anyway. Right. But just right. the idea that basically the episodes that, that, that really not only hold a mirror up to us the way Outcast did or the way Let That Be Your Last Battlefield did with TOS, but literally that hold a mirror up to ourselves and say, okay, you're doing something, but is it cool? Are you, or is it, is it what you want to do? That goes again to uh, whatever the last episode was with uh, with Wesley. 
I mean, he was always going to be in Starfleet. He was always going to be in Starfleet. And then it occurs to him, well, why? Okay, sure. maybe I will. Uh, journey's End. Journey's yeah. End. Thank you very much. I yeah. appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the last one only has six. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> some of which are actually on your list as well. Um, 11001001. Oh, yeah. Elementary yeah. Dear Data, Measure of a Man, The Quality of Life, and Home Soil. Uh, basically because they they make you question, you know, what is life exactly? Uh, you can also say, what is love? And then you could say, baby, baby don't, don't hurt, hurt me. me no more. Baby, don't hurt <laughs> yes. me no more. Exactly. Yes. Um, how will we treat the things that we've made? How will the things that we've made change who we are? Um, not that we created the things in home soil, but in home soil, it's just like, oh, look at those flashing lights. Anyway, let's get them out of here. And it turns out those flashing lights are um, life. There's not life as we've understood it. So basically those episodes I like because they they sort of uh, challenge our preconceived notions of what a thing is. Uh, The quality of life, I remember coming into our recording of it. I, I did not explain what any of those episodes were. One one zero zero one zero zero one is the one with Minuet, where the holodeck is being programmed sort of on the fly by the Binars, and Riker falls in love with her. Falls in love with her so much that three or four seasons later, when somebody's reading his mind, trying to convince him, oh, this is your wife and this is your child, um, the wife that they pull out of his brain, the love of his life that they pull out of his brain is Minuet, which is you know mind-blowing and amazing. Measure of the man, measure of a man. Of course, we already know that's the one with data on trial for his life. Uh, the quality of life is the one with the exocomps. Yep. And going into that recording, I hated it because I just remember thinking, "Uh, it's so cheesy." It was actually fairly amazing. Um, I thought when we rewatched it. Maybe that's because our technology has gotten to a place now where something that doesn't look like it could possibly be alive does say things like "thank you." <laughs> And my phone is now anticipating what I want to do because it's learning. Um, And is it learning the way we learn? Well, I don't know. That'll be something that we'll have to debate in five years. Hopefully somebody will do a science fiction show about it. Maybe call it (laughs) quality of life. Maybe. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. So that was a bunch of mine, dude. Um, What about – tell me about your honorable mention stuff. I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, um, for different reasons, you know, I, I, I think the the ones that made it to my list were really like yours. It's about the theme. It's about the idea. Uh, we might even say the moral meaning message behind hmm. it. Uh, yeah, right. Um, but my honorable mentions are a little more all over the map. Um, the Defector. Uh, it, it felt like this great slice of Cold War drama in Star Trek. And uh, I felt like my list would be really missing something if I didn't have James Sloyan in there. Because, man, that guy can act. Yeah. And he was fantastic. Uh, the Defector, you might remember, Ken, is about a, uh, a Romulan <laughs> admiral. And he is defecting. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not like defective. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Um, another episode that I picked, uh, also with a Romulan theme, would be Face of the Enemy. And it's just a, sort of a fun spy story, but man, is Marina Sirtis good. We've talked about how she was so often shortchanged. She's the character who gets violated, or Deanna is the character who gets violated one way or another in so many episodes to set up the plot. But in this, she is front and center, and she has so much to do, 
and she's great. You could also argue she's violated in this episode, though. I mean, she, I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know. She I was know, away but, at a conference, and then she yeah, and woke then up, they, and they've surgically altered her to look like a Romulan. They changed her into a Romulan. Right, and I know. she's on a Romulan I ship. So, I mean, okay. they, didn't, they didn't completely forget who she was. They didn't, yeah. but, but, but don't take that away from me that she is amazing oh, yeah. in this episode. Yeah, and, this, uh, one, this and, one was one that I considered for putting on my list for, the, for, for similar reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also go back, you know, last week we talked about favorite villains and uh, the most toys. I, I had picked uh, Kivas Fajo, who kidnapped Data as part of his toy collection. Just such a twisted psychopath of a character and uh, just made you feel creepy watching it. And when you get to the end, we're still left with that question lingering in the air about Data firing that disruptor that then got uh, uh, disarmed during the transport process. So that was a great little what-if moment, a great little Twilight Zone thing at the end of that episode to uh, to leave us. Now, you had the drumhead on your list. I also had the drumhead in my honorable mentions list for, for all the reasons you have it on yours. It, it is a fantastic episode. I felt pretty sure that uh, you would have it on yours, so I felt <laughs> safe just parking it in my honorable mentions. Um, family is on my honorable mentions list. Uh, it is such a step in a different direction for Star Trek. And and I know that there are arguments to be made for and against this episode, but uh, after the the drama and intensity of the best of both worlds, you had to decompress in a way to actually explore, okay, what happened to this character? And just not have an episode in space, not have an episode with technology, just a guy at home with his family. What happens then? I thought it was a, a brilliant piece of drama. And, and again, something that highlights uh, uh, Patrick Stewart as an actor so nicely. And finally, here's my wild card episode, because I felt like I needed to have one that was completely from out of left field. Devil's Due. And here's why. It's over the top. It's ridiculous. But go back to my original list here uh, of my essentials. To me, there are episodes that felt like TOS. That episode feels so much like TOS. You could literally just transplant Kirk for Picard and let it play out. Now, there are some interesting themes. You, you have the, the con man aspect to it. You have, the again, the false belief aspect of it. All these other things happening. But it just felt like something that at the time was dated and kind of ridiculous, and I wanted something kind of dated and ridiculous on my list. So uh, so there you have it. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, my honorable mention list is much shorter because, of course, I, you know, just put them all on my essential list. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, yeah. So what do you have? Uh, Darmok. Darmok is, oh. of course, the one, you know, with um, Jalad at Tanagra. Mm-hmm. When the Walls Fell. When yeah. the walls fell, yeah, no, Shaka. Yeah. When the walls fell, Shaka. When the walls fell, yeah. yeah. Uh, Darmok is enemy mine. <laughs> Darmok is the one where you have the uh, uh, Paul Winfield plays the other alien, and they he speaks English, but he doesn't speak English the way we speak English. They all speak in metaphor, which we thought was you know uh, kind of impossible, and yet there's really something absolutely beautiful about that episode. Um, mm-hmm. And also, it passes. It's just it's the meme. It's it's. I mean, it's always going to be not like the meme, like on Twitter or something like that. But people will always do, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra or Shaco and the Wallsfeller. Yeah. You know those kinds of things. Um, sales unfurled. His eyes open. The whole nine. 
nicely done. Uh, Love First Contact, the, uh, the, the episode, not the movie. For uh, showing us, and the movie's fine, but I mean, I, mm-hmm. like First Contact actually makes honorable mention the episode for showing us how closed-mindedness and superstition can hold whole societies back, uh, though points off for you know giving that society a pass and letting them do that. Kirk never would have let them do that. And that's probably the, one of the only times I'm going to defend Kirk over Picard, honestly. <laughs> Kirk never would have let them do that. Uh, also points off for the... Um, Uncomfortable situation that the BB Newith character put uh, put Riker in. Yep. Uh, Samaritan Snare for giving us the backlids. Aw, you, you really do have a soft spot in your heart for the Packlids. I absolutely have a soft spot for the Packlids. They're and they're they're you know terrible and scary. Um, they they could actually be in the first contact society if you think about them a little too hard. Mm-hmm. And finally, of course, uh, Booby Trap for giving us Booby Trap. Remind me that episode, Ken? That was the one uh, where the uh, Enterprise got caught in a booby trap. And in case you forgot it, at any point during the episode, they sent the Uh name. I can't remember the name of the episode now. Oh, because it's so funny. I go back to my honorable mentions this. At the very end, I I had uh, a note to myself, since this is probably the last time I'll get to say these on air. um, I had uh, schisms. And uh, and a little episode called Booby Trap. I wish I could say schisms. Schisms! <laughs> All right, friends, the moment has arrived. You've heard us talk about her here. You've seen her in 62 episodes of Next Gen and three movies. She's our capable, but oh-so-quiet Enterprise crush. She's Lieutenant J herself, Tracy Lee Coco. Tracy, thank you so much for being on Mission Log with us today. Oh, thank you guys for having me. Hi, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Tracy, I think the thing to do is you, you have to take us back. You have to take us back to the middle of production on Next Gen and tell us, how did you land on the Enterprise? How did you get the job? And um, and how soon was it before they started calling you back for more? I, I was on Baywatch when it first started as a lifeguard. Mm-hmm. Well, then they got canceled. In the meantime, I got a part in Eddie Murphy's Another 48 Hours as a bar patron, and I had to do a stunt in the in the uh, bar scene running over a uh, table in my pumps and a skirt. And so anyway, somebody from Paramount Star Trek was just happened to be on, you know, the lot that day and saw was watching and came up to me and they said, I think you need to go talk to Mary Howard up in production. I think they really love your look for Star Trek, the next generation. And I'm like, okay, well at the time, you know, I didn't really know what would, what I was getting into. So I went for the audition and I got the job and I didn't know at the time that being in the color, the black and gold was the best color to be on the show because they play two different parts. And I got on and I started out as an ensign. And then just one thing led to another. They had me, oh my gosh, they had me in all the scenes with all the major people. Um, I had a 10 forward outfit, you know, for the bar scenes. And they always had me next to Patrick Stewart. And he started getting letters, you know, asking about me and what was going on. And then I got promoted to lieutenant. And then Jonathan gave me my name by accident. And that stuck. So I ran with it. 
And then we um, did, you know, the three movies. Um, and in Generations, I'm flying the ship, get blown out of my chair by the Klingon sisters, but I don't die because I come back and then other movies, the next movies, I made that for sure in the contract <laughs> that I wasn't going to die. But they also, um, Michael Westmore, the head of makeup, I love him. He gave me the opportunity to, um, my first alien he had me do was an Antican. And I guess he really liked how I, you know, portrayed it. And I swear I've done at least that I can think right now off the top of my head, 11 or more aliens for Deep Space Nine and Voyager. Um, and then, you know, that led to like uh, Paramount paying for me to go to Miami and be like on the street um, in Miami as a Ferengi. Um, it's just led to a bunch of, you know, cool stuff. And then um, in 2012 is when I started on the um, circuit for the conventions. And I've been doing that ever since. And I just love it. I love my fans. Um, I just, I still can't, you know, believe I have fans, <laughs> but it's kind of cool. So um, I found out I have a cult following, a good cult following. I hear, you know, people play games like there she is again, you know, let's, you know, have a, not condoning drinking, but they have like a drinking game. It's just like, but I, I, I've got nothing but love from the Star Trek community. Um, they've basically been there for me, you know, in my ups and downs. And I just appreciate everything and every moment that, that, that the show has led me, you know, to go on. And then to be on shows like this where, oh, my gosh, I can't even believe I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I'm honored. Thank you so much for having me on. And it, uh, bleh, is that all you need to know? I mean, <laughs> there's just like so much, I mean, there's just one thing led to an, oh, and then, you know, being, um, a Borg, um, at a convention for Star Trek for their pinball game. I was also in the movie Demolition Man as a cop. Well, I'm as a Borg at the convention, right? And, and this guy taps me on, on my shoulder and says, um, excuse me, would you like to be the voice in our new Demolition Man pinball game coming out? And I'm like, what? And I was like, well, sh yeah, I go, I was in the movie as a cop and they're like, oh my gosh. So they flew me out to, um, Williams Bali Midway in Chicago. They're the ones that make most of the pinball games. And now if you play the game, demolition man, I'm the voice that talks to you in the game. So it's like, like weird things like that have happened to me that have been really cool, you know, but at the time I didn't know that I could have gotten a game for myself and, you know, some money where I didn't have an agent. So I just said, um, yeah, just pay me whatever. And they did. And, <laughs> but now I'm like going to kick myself because I would love to have my game. You know, it's kind of cool to have that, but just stuff like that. It's just been really weird, you know, but I love it. I mean, you're right. Cause you do have this, you do have this following I me. Mean, there's so many questions that I want to ask, but like one of them, I guess would be, I mean, you say you could have a game of your own. I mean, like, have you turned up as characters in any of the Star Trek games that you know about or that you've heard about? Or, I mean, do people ever come to you and say, so I've got this idea for a story? Um, you know what? I, I wish they would, but, um, you know, I was in, um, the Klingon, oh gosh. Um, I was a bar in a bar scene doing a, I think it was the hairless pink alien, um, in the, uh, bar scene in a video game or something for the Klingons. I'm not sure. Klingon Academy. Maybe. I'm not sure. I've been in a couple things. Um, I was even in, um, you know, those, those, um, things you used to put up near your eye in the light and then click and they would be pictures. Like a Viewmaster. Yeah, I'm in one of those, but as the Antican alien. So I'm in like stuff like that. Um, 
just weird stuff. I mean, I was Patrick Stewart's hands in um, the episode Rascals as a little <laughs> boy. They had me come in for that to be his hands as a little boy. Yeah. And then, like, um, I was the board, the, the stunt double for the board queen. And then they're like, my arms grabbing his legs when he's going up the ladder or something. And then when she's coming down from the ceiling, you know, where she connects to the bottom part, that was, that's me. I, I had to do that whole thing for her to come down. I mean, it was just like, just crazy stuff. I mean, <laughs> I can't even believe I've been like, I'm going to say 15 aliens. I'm not kidding. Let me ask a question. You said um, Jonathan accidentally gave you your name. Uh, the first question, of course, I have to ask is, you mean Jonathan Frakes? Yes, yes. And, and how did he accidentally give you that name? Well, I think he was going to say Lieutenant JG, but he said Lieutenant J, and, I, and it just stuck, and I ran with it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to spell it J-A-E. And, and then they, they just had me all over the show with everybody. I mean, I was in, you know, I was I, in 10 forward. I think I've seen me sitting next to Jonathan as a date next to Patrick and next to Michael Dorn. <laughs> so, <laughs> they had me all. I mean, I was every and um, a fan brought up that I, I, I wore every color, too. And I wore red and didn't die. Good, good call. But, but now, wait a minute. You, you just said that you have shown up as a date next to Riker, next to Picard, uh-huh. next to Wolf. Uh-huh. I, I have to, there's one moment, it's the opening of an episode, and you you, you endure uh, Data's poetry reading. But you were oh, sitting yes. very comfortably close to Patrick Stewart, to Captain <laughs> Picard. And it looks like, yeah, we're all listening to the poetry, but it looks like a moment that, that you two are about to have a moment. He's about to put his arm around you, or you're about to whisper <laughs> something to him. It seemed like if Jay were going to have a moment, that would be the moment. Yeah. They, well, they, they had us, you know, they said that we want, <laughs> want you guys to look like you're really bored. But, you know, I kept looking at him, and then we. I think the one take we, we all – we clapped, but we stood up, and that wasn't done yet. So we, oopsie, and we had to sit back down. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, they. But he was getting like letters and stuff asking about me. I mean, it was kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and then once, and then once, you know, once you get a name on the show, it's just nuts. I mean, I didn't speak really. <laughs> I mean, I think I said one time, "I sir" or something, and they cut it or something, but. I mean, I, I, I was at the helm. I, you know, was next to LeVar a lot. Um, him and I would, oh, he's so good. Everybody on that show, when I see them now at conventions, I mean, they could have a line of people and I could be standing there off the side waving and they will drop everything and, and tell me to come over and, and they give me a hug and stuff. I mean, it's just like, oh. it's just crazy. Yeah. And then I finally got a chance at the Santa Fe con that I did this last year. Um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I finally got the chance to talk to Marina. Her and I never really had a chance to like, just hang out and chat really quick, you know, like uh, on the off, you know, like outside. And, um, she, she always talks about me on her panels about the stunt that I did in the movie, because, you know, she obviously comes and takes the seat and crashes the ship. (laughs) (laughs) But she tells this story in her cute accent, and it's on YouTube, and it is adorable. And um, I didn't know this until she, the, till I heard it. And um, she said, "Yeah." She goes, 
as soon as, you know, the explosion happened and then you get blown out of your chair, I have to take your seat. And she said she sat down on the hot ambers and it burned her, her outfit. So she got, she got oh. really mad and we had to do another take. Well, I didn't know that, you know. Um, wow. And then I guess there's another thing on, uh, oh, gosh, uh, YouTube about uh, the, oh, outtakes and Jonathan is he chases me down the hall and yells my name and I didn't know that was that was there until somebody sent it to me and um oh gosh a fan in in London um made this clip of all my you know it's on YouTube too it's uh, a tribute to Lieutenant J and it's a clip of all me and all my outfits on all Star Trek and then he he put it to the Chrissy Hine uh, music to the pretenders um got us in pocket and it made me totally cry when I first saw it so I you know, when I do the conventions um, and I do my panel, I try to uh, put that on and play that in the beginning. And then I have my Demolition Man um, pinball promo video near the end. So it kind of breaks up time and, you know, it gives people, you know, the opportunity to ask me about other stuff besides Star Trek 2. I mean, I, you know, I look at my stuff that I've done and, wow, I've done, you know, I've done a lot. And I've done a lot of voice stuff. Um, but like I said, this convention thing, I... I just love doing it. And, you know, if, if you guys or anybody out there wants me to come to your town, let me know. So were you, and not to, well, I'm going to bring it back to Star Trek because we're a Star Trek show. <laughs> were you a Star Trek fan before you got the gig? I mean, like, I mean, obviously we all know who Kirk is. We all know who Spock is. And, and certainly Next Gen was a thing at the time because, you know, you got hired to work on it. But yeah. were you a Star Trek fan before you were a Star Trek practically a regular? Not like, no, no. I mean, I, I remember watching, you know, Captain Kirk and Spock and them. And, you know, I'd click on it every now and then. But no, not like now. I mean, now I totally watch everything. So, I mean, I've watched the new Discovery. I think that's pretty, pretty rad. Um, I also, you know, I, I like the Orville just because it, it's just funny. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, <laughs> I would love to get on either or. I don't care if playing an alien. I do not even care. Um <laughs> It's an interesting thing that happens that um, it, it seems like on Star Trek, uh, the, they'll find a, a core of actors that they like working with and keep bringing them back. And, you know, on the original series, you had a guy like Billy Blackburn, who was on so many, I think like 50 out of the 79 episodes and just kept bringing them back, kept bringing them back. So if they like somebody, they they want to keep working with that person. And, and you're you know, front and center, you know, not just uh, as Lieutenant J, but obviously all the alien work and voiceover work and all of that stuff. So it seems like there must have been a pretty great relationship between you and the production. Uh, you know, tell us about that. Tell us about what uh, what, what the mood was like and, uh, and what your days were like on set there. And uh, clearly it sounds like you got along with all the cast as well. Oh, yeah. The days on the set were great. I mean, I... Um... My call times were, I see, I live in Orange County, so I never lived in LA. I just, you know, went to Paramount when I, when I got my call times, I, I would work knowing I would be on the bridge. Um, they film like three times a week. So, um, I knew at least three times that week I'd be, you know, up in LA, but my call times were where I'd never really hit any traffic. And then sometimes my days would be really quick. And sometimes, you know, obviously the more the week goes on, um, the call time gets later and later and later. Um, when I did the aliens, um, I remember the one alien I did with the, um, fork tongue and the, uh, 
context in my eyes. I call her the pretty one. I don't know exactly um, <laughs> the name. I don't know the name of that alien, but I wanted to say it was Lizard Lady. Just it looks like she's, That'll work. It, it was my pretty, work. my prettiest, my prettiest one. But anyway, um, I remember the call time for, for her, um, and I believe it was on Voyager. Um, was at 3 a.m. and it was six hours to get in into that. And then um, I was lucky enough to. They were shooting it right after I got done with makeup and they shot the first scene and then poof, I was out of it and home by at least like 11 in the afternoon. So, hmm. or 11 in the morning. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, and then, you know, sometimes I'd be there early in the morning till later at night, but you know what? I, it, it was great being there. I love being there. Um, anything they wanted me to do, I'd say, yeah. Um, I think one of the things that helped me was they loved, um, I used, you know, on the show, I had this short spiky hair. Um, I, I cut my own hair back then and, you know, styled it myself. So that to them was like, wow, they, you know, <laughs> low maintenance. <laughs> so, um, you know, and you don't really wear a lot of makeup on Starfleet. So that was, you know, I don't really wear a lot of makeup anyway. So I just think they liked my look and it worked for them. Um, I remember when I did go for the audition, some girl that was there in the audition kind of was trying to burst my bubble. And she was like, you're too short. You're not going to, you know, they're not going to pick you. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And then I guess I shook right, you know, cause you have to like, they have you shake, like when the ship's shaking <laughs> and if you don't do the mm -hmm. shaking right, then you're out of there. Yeah. You're out of there. And then they also have like a, um, they had us, we had to totally fit into our outfit, you know, so, you, you know, you had to keep, you know, trim and stuff. So that was always a, you know, major deal for me. So, um, but like I said, and then one thing led to another and they had me in every color. Um, oh my gosh, I've been, all, I was all over the ship. I mean, and then Worf, I guess, oh, I don't remember what episode it was, but he's carrying me off because I had a cut on my face. Um, the, my favorite one was um, Rascals because um, I played a Ferengi in there. I played me, Lieutenant J, and then I was Patrick Stewart's hands. So that one was a, that one, I'll always remember that one. It's much better that you were his hands as a little kid as opposed to that episode where his hand was, you know, the, the craggly old 150-year-old man hand, I think. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So good casting there. <laughs> well, yeah. When they called me for that, they said um, they want you to come in um, and double for Patrick Stewart's hands. I was like, what? And like, <laughs> I guess because, you know, I guess I have little little kid hands. I don't know. At the time, they weren't, you know, covered. They were kind of rough looking because I like to guard, garden and stuff. But um, It must have seemed a bit weird, though, if you hadn't read the script yet. Like, yeah, well, sure, my hands look exactly like Patrick Stewart, so that makes perfect <laughs> sense. We've actually joked here a lot about um, how heartbreaking it is to us, anyway, that you never got a line. Um, it's interesting, actually, that you said you did have that line that one time, but it ended up on the cutting room floor. I guess I'm kind of wondering, like – like you accidentally got a name, you now have a following because you accidentally got a name and you were there like 62 times. Was there ever a time that you thought, man, I wish, you know, I wish, I wish I had an episode or I wish I had a line or I wish I had a conversation or were you just like, you know, happy to get the call time and show up for the gig? I was totally happy to get the call time and show up for the gig, but yeah, I would have loved to have, um, I mean, who knows if it, if it was still on TV right now, who knows? I, I just have a weird feeling. I, it might've led that way. Really? Um, you know, sometimes we did a take and, um, yeah, I would say something, um, by accident, you know, and get not in trouble, but, um, just to see, <laughs> just to see if I throw it out there. <laughs> well, was that you a know? contractual thing that, that you could not speak? Um, um, 
I think so because, yeah, I mean, they were very strict. I mean, even yeah. even when they were, would do dialogue, um, if they would say one little word or syllable wrong, oh, my God, no, 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 you have to say it just right. and Or they'd have to go up to the big wig, you know, and, yeah. and get okayed. Or, you know, yeah, it was a whole major deal. <laughs> yeah. But um, I was just – I'm just still so excited. Like, I just got – um, back from Colorado Springs for Gal- from Galaxy Fest. And then at the end of March, I'm going to be in um, Austin, Texas for HavenCon. And then I come back and Phoenix Fest wants me back in Phoenix again. So I'm excited and they have me up. I don't know if you've seen it, but I am on the, I'm on their webpage with William Shatner, Will Wheaton and me. Oh my God. <laughs> who, even, who knew that would happen? Right. I'm with the, um, I'm with the big boys. Well, that, that's kind yeah. of the fun of Star Trek, though. It's that, that there's no detail of Star Trek that is too small. So yeah. it, it doesn't matter. I mean, in, in, in a Star Trek fan's eyes, it's Captain Kirk, Wesley Crusher, Lieutenant J. You know, they, they're, yeah. they're all on equal footing. Absolutely. That is, a, that is a crazy thing to think about. Lieutenant J has been in almost as many episodes of Star Trek as Captain Kirk. That's and well, yeah, well more I, and well more than Wesley. Well, I heard, I heard. Just to correct you, I heard that I've been in over a hundred episodes. Well, you well, okay, like you, but Lieutenant J. I mean, the character, like the, the character Lieutenant J. Yes, you, the actor, you've you've definitely done more more Star Trek than Shatner. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which is hilarious. <laughs> Make sure that when you're on stage with Shatner, you take every opportunity to remind him and everyone around that you have been in more Star Trek than he has. <laughs> Okay. That, that's oh, very yeah. important love, to me. He'll love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I, there is nothing I would recommend less than you're doing that. <laughs> that oh, seems, my God. He'll yeah. love that. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> so you mentioned a lot of places that you're going to be turning up. I assume that these are the kinds of things that are, that are kept up to date um, on your website. Can you let people know, uh, website, uh, a Twitter handle, uh, where people can find you online? Um, yeah, I, um, on Twitter, it's at and then real Tracy Coco, T-R-A-C-E-E-C-O-C-C-O. And then Instagram is T-R-A-C-E-E, then the underscore C-O-C-C-O. And on Facebook, I have Tracy Lee Coco Fan Club. And then I also have Tracy Lee Coco. Um, and my URL is LieutenantJ.com. And I have... Um, pictures that are on my, you know, um, website that people can purchase, um, through, you know, I have PayPal or whatever. And, um, you know, if they can't make it to a convention or whatever, but yeah, look me up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you're very active online. I, I, you know, I, I see you on Facebook and and all kinds of, and that, that's awesome. So you you definitely, for all the, for all the Lieutenant J fans out there know that uh, Tracy is there and, uh, and you you talk and interact and, and just seem to be having a a great time and, and a real passion and love for Star Trek and a a love for talking to your fans, which is awesome to see. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love my fans. I mean, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I am right now. And um, I give them like the real me. You know, it's me. That's just me. I mean, I hang out with them. Um, I try to give them a real con experience. Um, You know, I, I always do. If they have karaoke, my song to go is Rock Lobster. I don't know if you've seen it online, but oh. and I do all the <laughs> I do all the noises, and they love it. Um, I did that in Vegas last year. They love that. I had my own stunt panel um, 
with Patricia Tolman. She was on there too. And uh, uh-huh. Michael Wynn and yeah. And I'm hoping to be back this year, but I don't, you know, I'm hoping I haven't heard anything yet, but we'll see. No, look, um, if there are plans to do Rock Lobster at Vegas, then yes, that that this needs to happen. You need to be there again. Um, uh, yeah, I, I will make sure I, I will put, do whatever you, I can. You let's can put, put in the call a good word now. for me. Yes, let's put okay. the call out now. Let's make this happen. Uh, that that okay, just made cool. my day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> no, I love doing that. I mean, I, you know, I, I just and I meet so many other actors, too, that are just so cool. Aaron Eisenberg and I were just, you know, at Colorado Springs. He is just too funny. And, you know, um, oh, I just love him to death. Anyway, um, so I run into like certain ones that I've done cons with before. Um, Chase Masterson and I get along great. Um, I get along basically with everybody. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, I just like to have a nice, fun time. And give people an experience they, they, they will remember. I mean, you know, I'm you know, normally they have you signing, you know, behind the table. Well, if somebody comes up and wants, you know, to buy, you know, whatever, a selfie or a photo, you know, with me in the photo, I'll come out around the table instead, instead of leaning over the table. I mean, to me, that's just so not personal. So I just, I do like stuff like that. And the, the fans really, seem to enjoy it and they they always want me to come back and I get a lot of good feedback from that and you know I I just like to try to try to give my all every time I do these so you know they wear me out when I get home but it's worth it so We're tempted here to say that we're done talking about TNG, but can you ever really be done talking about TNG? Is that a rhetorical question? Well, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. (laughs) We have a couple of interviews that we're still talking to people about, you know, having them on, and we're not 100% certain when they're going to be here. But, man, one of them in particular I'm really excited about. I'll be excited about the other one when it firms up. But, you know, I'm really excited about the one that's that's gelling even as we speak. Uh, Signpost ahead says ds9 so we're gonna be there soon but if you don't quit kicking the back of my seat and if you don't quit asking we'll turn this show around we'll turn this show around and go all the way back to tos look we'll get to ds9 and we are of course going to get there soon yeah, so uh, I'll be updating our social media in a bit to let you know exactly when those dates uh, are, are firmed up. We, we There's so much more to talk about when it comes to TNG. And as Ken just mentioned, we do have some interviews. So there's just a whole lot more mission log to come because there's a whole lot more TNG to come, a whole lot more discussion. We'll have your supplemental episodes. And we'll have the interviews that look back on where we've been. And remember, we also have our live show where we can talk about every Star Trek topic under the sun. So uh, we'll be expanding that scope a little bit as well. So so DS9, it's right around the corner. It's just it, like it's right there. We're almost, you, you know, we have to slow down so we don't pass it, in fact. Um, <laughs> so, that would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? It would be, right? It would be. We just say, oh, wait, wait, we, we landed at Voyager. What happened? You yeah. Know? Uh, um, we should have been doing, we should have been doing a metric instead of um, Imperial. Exactly. That's a problem. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. So, so DS9 is on the way, but there's a lot more to happen between now and then, and then other things, other supplementals that will happen even after we kickstart DS9. So pay attention to us at uh, facebook.com slash mission log pod and on Twitter at mission log pod and uh, we'll do the latest updates there 
Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Of course, Roddenberry has other podcasts besides Mission Log. Heck, John just mentioned Mission Log Live, but that's not even all. We've also got Women at Warp, Priority One, The Track Files, and who knows what else is going to be popping up there. You can find out at podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to help support this show, that would be fantastic. Patreon.com slash mission log is the way to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit Trekmovie.com. podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network